Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to another Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast is the very first of our podcasts that will feature our AUA update series and one of its landmark articles. The AUA update series features the most timely topics and latest surgical techniques in urology. It's been the AUA's most popular self-study CME product and is now in its 37th year. For those of you who aren't familiar with the update series, it consists of 40 separate lessons in each year. And currently we are featuring the update series from 2018. The lesson that we're going to talk about today is an update on medical and surgical management of advanced testes cancer. It is my great pleasure to introduce my co-host and senior author of that update series lesson, Dr. Sia Danishman, who is Associate Professor of Urology, Director of Urologic Oncology, and Director of Clinical Research at the University of Southern California Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center and Keck USC School of Medicine. Sia, welcome. Thank you so much, Vic. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to talk to you and on this uh, uh, podcast. So, yeah, we're, we're going to, I guess, uh, talk about uh, this AUA update series on uh, testis cancer. It's an important topic that I think that doesn't get as much attention as uh, some of the other topics in urology. Right. And I would agree it is an important topic and it is a topic uh, near and dear to, uh, to urology. Um, so I thought we'd start out with discussing a little bit about the diagnosis of testis cancer. I thought maybe you could talk about the basic evaluation of a patient with a suspected uh, testicular cancer um, and then where you go from there. Absolutely. So um, I think, you know, uh, many people have learned about diagnosis in the past and they think maybe there's something better or new. But really, uh, uh, basic evaluation still includes the uh, testicular ultrasound, and especially in this day and age with the uh, um, more modern ultrasounds, uh, you really get an outstanding picture of the testicles, and there's really no need for any other imaging test uh, to, to image the testicles. And of course, the serum tumor markers, a beta-HCG, a quantitative beta-HCG, alpha feta protein and LDH. Um, it's important to check LDH. I think that's often missed in uh, many patients because that could be uh, sometimes the only elevation. It is something to follow and it, it does come into the staging system. So the basic evaluation, of course, a history and physical uh, followed by if you have any suspicion of testicular ultrasound and the serum tumor markers. So <clears throat> let's say you have a patient and you do uh, you do that evaluation, and your ultrasound comes up equivocal. You're not, it, it's a small mass, perhaps less than a centimeter. Um, it's equivocal. Where does one go from there? Yeah, great question. And I think this comes up quite often, actually, where uh, someone comes in with perhaps pain and you find a lesion either on that side or on the other side that's less than a centimeter, it's equivocal. You're not really sure. 
Uh, last thing you want to do is lose that testicle for benign pathology. And I can tell you that more than 95% of masses less than one centimeter are benign. Most of them are testicular cysts. There's, um, uh, of course, you'll do your serum tumor markers. And if those are negative or normal, then uh, you can always repeat the evaluation with an ultrasound in six to eight weeks. So that's the recommendation rather than going after these masses, which can harm the testicle. And of course, you could you could lose that testicle. So don't worry about re-imaging. And if it hasn't changed again, re-image again in three months and keep it under surveillance. But uh, don't do orchiectomy for masses less than a centimeter. In my days of urologic residency, uh, it was always uh, taboo or forbidden to consider any sort of uh, testicular biopsy transcrotally for fear of uh, contamination and, and spread of tumor. Is that still the current thinking or is there ever any role for um, uh, a, a minimally invasive or percutaneous biopsy? No, really isn't, uh, and uh, uh, you bring up a good point. This this is one of those tenets of uh, basic oncology that you don't do a transcrotal uh, biopsy. Um, that, that's only for infertility workup and and uh, uh, should never be done for for fear of just like you said spreading the tumor into the into the uh, uh, scrotal uh, circulation and, and hence the inguinal lymph nodes. So it's still not not recommended. If by any chance you do need to do a biopsy for truly equivocal lesion uh, that is is uh, suspicious, uh, one can do that in the operating room through an inguinal incision and, and a exploration, uh, provided you have the cord clamped and and uh, uh, ready to go for an, for a radical orchiectomy. But those those situations are pretty rare in this day and age. See, if you did that, would you would you use intraoperative ultrasound or basically go by palpation? No, uh, I think uh, intraoperative ultrasound is a great tool, especially for a, a lesion that is intratesticular. Um, and you can bivalve, uh, you, you know, where the lesion is uh, and take the sample from there. It can be difficult uh, because they, they can look normal and, and obviously not palpable if it's intratesticular. So intraoperative ultrasound, I think, is a great tool. I tell you, uh, for, uh, for patients who have intratesticular masses, I always do an on-table OR ultrasound myself just to be absolutely 110% sure we're taking out the correct testicle uh, if you can't palpate it, even though you have the imaging right there, just to, just to be sure that you cannot make a mistake in that. Now, before we move on to, to orchiectomy, which will obviously give us, uh, in, in most cases, uh, a definitive diagnosis, is there a role for any sort of advanced imaging prior to that? So we have suspicious testicular mass. Um, we think it needs to be, um, we've done an ultrasound, we're ready to go ahead with an orchiectomy. Is the appropriate time for advanced imaging now, or is that better done post-orchiectomy when a specific diagnosis is made? Yeah, I think e either time is fine. If if you already have elevated markers with a larger mass and you you're certain about the diagnosis, you can uh, you can do that prior to the orchiectomy. And the the standard imaging would be a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis with IV contrast. Um, you don't need MRIs. You don't need brain imaging unless you have very very high levels of HCG. I'm talking hundreds of thousands, and, and there's a significant component of choriocarcinoma. Other than that, uh, the basic evaluation would be a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis. 
Uh, similarly, I, I think PET scans uh, should not really be used for evaluation of patients with metastatic germ cell tumors. It really does not add anything to the staging information or the clinical decision making. All decisions are, are based on mercury evaluation and findings on, on, a, on a standard CT with IV contrast. All right, let's move on now to uh, the actual uh, initial treatment and what's the optimal timing or is there an optimal timing for orchiectomy? Yeah, even in my time when when I was uh, in residency, we say, you know, you, you, you do it as an ASAP within 24 hours, but I, I think that's an old notion. It, obviously, these things don't pop up overnight and, and you do have time. So especially um, you should give time to... Um, uh, 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 have the patient evaluated for uh, fertility, meaning, uh, you know, evaluate for sperm banking, uh, give some time for the patient to absorb the information, get their CT scan, get their pre-ops. So um, optimal timing is sort of as soon as possible, but certainly not the urgency with which we used to think these things need to be done. Um, uh, routinely, patients can wait up to a week and it really doesn't change uh, the management uh, whatsoever, uh, even if the markers continue to, to rise. Uh, so obviously you don't want to wait uh, one month or two months. These things can grow quite quickly. And, and uh, what you don't want is a, is a shift in the stage. Now, once an orchiectomy is done, and you can talk about uh, different pathologies, but assuming tumor markers were elevated preoperatively, when uh, optimally should they be initially checked post-orchiectomy? Yeah, it all depends on the um, uh, tumor marker elevation. So if it's alpha-fetoprotein, your half-life is going to be uh, three to four days, and you kind of figure out when uh, you think those markers are going to be down far enough. Generally, you'll have a post-op visit. I typically will do it at seven to 10 days post-orchiectomy and check markers at that point. Um, and and if it's still elevated and, and if you have significant elevation pre-orchiectomy, you're going to see them a few times uh, following that. So, you know, your general first post-op visit and then you follow it until it either normalizes or if you've got metastatic disease, then you move on to systemic uh, therapy. Okay. So now we, we, we've done our orchiectomy. Um, we have our diagnosis, but... Um, much of the treatment now or, or further treatment is obviously going to be based on the stage of the tumor. So I thought maybe we could take a few minutes and discuss um, testis tumor staging. What is the uh, sort of the latest, the latest staging and classification system um, for testes tumors? Yeah, absolutely. I think testis is, is special and, and a source of a lot of confusion uh, regarding staging and, and uh, because we don't tend to use the T and M staging as much, uh, and we use the stage uh, one, two, three system uh, to to describe what's going on. So certainly, the t testis is only the part of the T um, uh, stage, and not really as as informative because you can have uh, stage one tumor be T one through T three, or even T four. Really, that rarely happens, but that doesn't define uh, stage one, which means no evidence of metastases. What really uh, you need to do is, is look at the, um, uh, whether the tumor has any lymphovascular invasion um, and, and see whether there are any nodal metastases, which would put you in, in the stage two and three, and then look at uh, 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 distant metastases. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, 
I would encourage people to use the stage one, uh, uh, two and three system. And uh, stage one would be no evidence of any metastases. Uh, uh, that is split up into stage one A and B, depending on whether or not you have lymphovascular invasion. Uh, there is an S staging system as well. Uh, that's all in the uh, AUA update um, in a table where you can look up the S and the S refers to the serum tumor markers um, and the AFP and beta HCG levels will put you into an S1, S2, or S3 category uh, with, with S1, for instance, being HCG of less than 5,000, AFP less than 1,000, and S3 being more than uh, AFP of more than uh, 10,000 and beta HCG of more than 50,000, and S2 is somewhere in between. So um, these, these are very, very uh, useful uh, because these uh, dictate uh, how we're, we're going to treat the patient subsequent uh, to the um, uh, orchiectomy. Now, something to, to realize, again, very, very important point is that treatment is based on post-orchiectomy tumor markers and risk stratification is based on post-orchiectomy tumor markers. So you may have an elevation of, you know, an AFP of 2000, which would put you in an intermediate risk category. However, uh, if you do an orchiectomy, that tumor marker normalizes, that puts you back into a, in a, in a, a, um, uh, a, a lower stage uh, a category and a good risk, what we call the IGCCCG uh, good risk uh, category. So, so all these things are detailed. I won't go into uh, too much detail in this uh, podcast about it, but it's all in there in the AUI update, how these things are staged. And of course, it matters because um, it de depends on how many cycles of chemo we give. So the, um, the IGCCCG classification um, that's really relatively simple, so to speak, in that it classifies patients into good, intermediate, and poor prognosis groups, really just based on marker elevation, site of disease, uh, and then that can further, I guess, be incorporated into the TNM system. Is that correct? As I that, read it? yeah, that's ex that's exactly right. I mean, it is a very good system of of you know putting patients into good risk, and it's it's very much prognostic, uh, with overall survival rates are uh, being uh, over ninety five percent for the good risk, and then it drops from there to you know seventy percent for the poor risk, and and this is how we classify patients. This is how we uh, treat patients <laughs> accordingly. Uh, this is the International um, uh, uh, Germ Cell Cancer Collaborative Group. Um, so, so those are, as you said and mentioned, that they're based on the uh, tumor markers and um, uh, the, 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 the staging system. So the tumor markers are very, very informative with the S1, S2, S3 basically corresponding to the good, uh, intermediate, and poor risk. So is this, uh, again, where the concept of risk-adapted therapy comes into play? That's exactly right. Yeah, for good risk patients uh, who have metastatic disease, they would get three cycles of chemotherapy as opposed to poor risk patients who would get uh, uh, four cycles of chemotherapy of, of BEP. Okay, so let's move on. We have now, we've now done our, uh, our orchiectomy um, and we've staged it. What is the current uh, role of uh, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection? Um, so, a great question. So, so uh, I, I like to break it up into primary RPLND and post-chemotherapy RPLND. I think the current role for primary RPLND would be 
uh, higher risk stage one disease. So by higher risk, I mean uh, someone who has lymphovascular invasion, although those patients are also very good candidates for uh, surveillance. Uh, that's a long discussion and, 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 a, and uh, described very well in, in the uh, update series about the pros and cons of RPLND versus observation or even versus primary chemotherapy for stage 1B or the uh, uh, stage 1 patients who have a high risk, higher risk, I should say, uh, chance of uh, retroperitoneal recurrence. Regardless, um, they, they have a very, very good prognosis and stage 1 patients essentially have a more than 99% chance of survival for both seminomas and non-seminomas. I think the biggest benefit uh, of primary RPLND comes for lower stage 2A uh, patients. These are patients who have lymph nodes um, uh, two centimeters or less in the retroperitoneum, um, no more than five lymph nodes and essentially uh, normal tumor markers. Uh, RPLND, primary RPLND can be therapeutic or, or curative in about 70% of these patients without any further systemic therapy. So see in your practice, if you have patients with stage one non-seminomatous germ cell tumors, what do you think is the percentage that would opt for primary RPLND versus surveillance? Um, yeah, I think it all depends on how you uh, present it to the patient. What I start out with is I, I start out the conversation with, uh, look, if you're stage one disease, your your survival is a hundred, close to a hundred percent, and now we have to figure out how you want to get there. Um, if, if you have the appetite uh, for surveillance and realizing that you may have a, if you're high risk, up to 50% chance of relapse with, again, 100% uh, chance will cure you with chemotherapy afterwards, then, then surveillance is right for you. Uh, but for the lower risk patients, there's the, the ones without lymphovascular invasion, the one without uh, predominant embryonal cell carcinoma, the risk of relapse is actually only 15%. So it makes much better sense to do surveillance in that setting. Um, than, than primary RPLND, where 85% of the uh, surgeries would be unnecessary, really. These are patients who are already cured. Especially because the recovery is, is so good uh, if they move on to need further therapy. Exactly, yeah. How about RPLND for low-stage seminoma? Yeah, you bring up a good point. So um, uh, this is a new concept uh, that we've been uh, examining uh, recently. Uh, so typically, uh, RPLD has not been a uh, procedure for seminomas because, uh, again, low-stage seminoma, stage one, is highly, highly curable with orchiectomy only with about a 14 to 17% chance of relapse. Um, so 85% of patients are already cured, so they don't need any further adjuvant therapies. However, what about the patients who uh, do relapse? Uh, most of them relapse in the retroperitoneum. Uh, or what about patients who present with stage 2A disease, those who have uh, already a lymph node that's greater than a centimeter in the retroperitoneum? Uh, the classic treatment would be either radiation therapy or BEP times three. We think that's overkill uh, for those patients. That's the exact same regimen you would use for widely metastatic non-seminoma. So we've uh, recently embarked on a multi-institutional uh, trial, uh, surgical trial to evaluate the efficacy of RPLND in this setting. Uh, we've uh, so far uh, enrolled 24 patients into this trial. Uh, it's a phase two multi-center trial, um, and uh, our primary um, 
outcome will be uh, recurrence-free survival and overall, not overall, but recurrence-free survival in cancer-specific survival uh, over a three-year uh, period. So, so far, um, we, we have had great experience uh, with this uh, surgery. It's very low morbidity operation, and, and the re relapse rates have been extremely low, but uh, we'll wait for the final results. So just to let you know, there is a phase two um, surgical trial open for, for RPLND for stage 2A seminoma. How about, you know, obviously with RPLND, um, the, some, the, the major morbidity or concern in, in young men uh, is ejaculatory function. What about some tips on preserving uh, ejaculatory function? Yeah, I think since the uh, 80s, uh, with work from uh, Mike Jewett and, and the work from Indiana University with Donahue, uh, um, they were the pioneers in, in understanding uh, the mechanisms in, in uh, ejaculatory function. Um, and those were the um, <coughs> involvement of the postganglionic sympathetic nerves that run alongside the great vessels on either side. So um, if you really understand the anatomy, and especially in lower stage um, cancers, and even in, in more difficult ones, look for these things that are very um, uh, consistent. Uh, uh, and if you're to preserve the L3, L4 postganglionic sympathetic nerve that goes down to the hypocastric plexus, then you can preserve ejaculatory function in this population. So uh, we make great effort to do this on every case, even all the post-chemo uh, RPLNDs, and, and, and obviously, this is a very young population and, and still in their uh, sort of uh, 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 fertility stages in their lives and their relationships. So very, very important uh, to do this. Uh, of course, if you end up with retrograde ejaculation, then uh, certainly there are other assisted re reproductive technologies to help. But, but uh, we, we make great efforts to, to preserve function. What else do you do to sort of to minimize just the general morbidity of an RPLND um, you know, in, in your typical patients. Yeah, so I, I think in the past, we used to make very large incisions. And you know, when I trained, it was all thoracoabdominal operations and you know, uh, make sure you, you get everything in the pit. But you know, with, with modern uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, approaches to, to this uh, operation, and we've minimized morbidity by using smaller incisions. And one of the things we're doing is uh, doing a midline extraperitoneal operation. The entire surgery is done through a uh, extraperitoneal approach, uh, something that's fairly familiar to most urologists, uh, sort of starting that extraperitoneal plane down in the pelvis and then uh, sweeping the peritoneum over the retroperitoneal structures, uh, putting appropriate retractors and, and, and you have uh, now your exact same um, uh, uh, exposure to the retroperitoneum. So that really minimizes all the bowel morbidity of these operations, and we've been able to reduce the hospital stay to a median of three days, and it's not unusual to see patients actually going home the next day or even day two um, after major, major uh, resections. So this is a huge departure from what we used to do in the past with the huge incisions, lots of fluid loss and potential blood loss and transfusions and all this stuff. So we're better at managing, I think, uh, 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 fluids and, and incisions and things like that that have, that have made this operation much more tol tolerable. No more nasogastric tubes, no bowel preps, uh, no special diets, and, and all this stuff I think helps. And you prefer that to say a um, minimally invasive lap or robotic approach? 
Yeah, um, and and that's a that's a big discussion as well. Uh, the the um, merits of uh, minimally invasive uh, techniques in management of uh, testis cancer. I think uh, there's a paucity of uh, good data out there. I think there are some very talented surgeons out there who are able to do these operations. There's still some concern by uh, some of us experts about the efficacy or equivalence of the procedures. Um, I think there's more data coming. And, and again, there are very few groups doing this, especially in the post-chemotherapy setting. Um, you know, uh, my mentor, Don Skinner, used to say, you only get one chance. And that's so true um, that uh, you really only get one chance in the retroperitoneum. It's got to be done right. Uh, otherwise, these patients suffer great morbidities and even mortality if, if you don't do the right operation that's, that's highly, highly curable for this uh, population. So, um, you know, I think uh, there, there should be some caution and prudence uh, with newer techniques uh, in an operation that's so curable. All right. So now we spoke about orchiectomy. We spoke to, spoken about RPLND. Um, I guess the last uh, treatment we'll discuss is chemotherapy. And, you know, I thought you might start with an overview of what, how many cycles, best way to deliver? Sure. Um, so it's fairly straightforward, actually. If you have good risk metastatic disease, then so the IGCC uh, uh, classification, uh, you get either three cycles of BEP or four cycles of EP. So bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin, uh, each cycle is three weeks. So that would be a nine-week treatment. If you opt for the EP times four, etoposide, cisplatin, you'd get four cycles. And those are essentially equivalent as far as cancer control goes. However, you do have to consider that while you drop the bleomycin, uh, use of um, uh, another cycle of etoposide and cisplatin does increase the uh, toxicity because cisplatin is the one that sticks around your body for years and even decades and does uh, slightly increase uh, uh, the morbidity of, of the chemotherapy vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, the uh, hearing loss and neuropathy and things like that. So uh, we at our institution and many institutions around the world um, uh, consider BEP times three as the standard treatment, uh, but, but many uh, oncologists are not very familiar or, or comfortable with bleomycin and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll opt for the EP times four. Both are acceptable, both are on the NCCN guidelines. Um, as far as um, the um, side effects uh, go, again, we, we touched upon the extra cycles and bleomycin, of course, you know, has the pulmonary toxicities, but, but really it's, it's, it's been overplayed for, for decades. Uh, I think the toxicity of bleomycin is not as bad as we used to think it is. Certainly you, you do see it, um, in patients, but, but it's quite tolerated quite well, uh, unless you have significant pulmonary disease, which is rare in this patient population. Is there ever a time where you would do more cycles of chemotherapy? Uh, no. So really, um, well, the, the, the first line treatment would be the, the BEP times three for good risk disease. I'm sorry, I didn't mention for, for intermediate or poor risk disease, you should be getting four cycles of BEP. 
Um, so th that's the distinction there. Should you get more chemo if you haven't responded to BEP times three or, or four, depending on your risk category, then you move on to salvage chemotherapy regimens, which would be either TIP or VIP. So some kind of iphosphamide-based chemotherapy. Um, and and there are there is a trial right now to to compare the um, standard uh, uh, ITP or TIP. Uh, with high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplantation as your salvage regimen. Um, the, now, this would be non-response based on tumor markers or, or, or the uh, tumor mass. There is one special situation uh, that I think we should discuss here that's very important is when you have a, a, a tumor that um, uh, actually grows during chemotherapy, however, your tumor markers respond completely. Those patients um, have teratoma and a phenomenon called growing teratoma syndrome and really should be treated with surgery rather than additional cycles of chemotherapy. So again, if your tumor markers have normalized and your tumor mass has increased in size and has cystic components, that is a growing teratoma and that patient should have surgery. Uh, see, I thought we could talk a little bit as we finish up uh, on the role of post-chemo RPLND. Yeah, that's a, a, a favorite topic of mine. So indications for post-chemo RPLND, I, I think the sort of uh, world accepted uh, indications are any residual mass greater than one centimeter in non-seminomas for uh, post-chemo. Um, so th those, those are candidates. For seminomas, it's a little bit different. Seminomas don't have the teratoma component. So we allow up to a three centimeter mass and oftentimes you don't even get a discrete mass that you can measure. Uh, so it, it's sort of a uh, sometimes a, a evaluation of, of the entire pic clinical picture and then the response um, and use of perhaps pets. This is the only setting where you can use pets to help adjudicate whether or not uh, uh, the residual mass post uh, chemotherapy for seminoma is something you wanna go after. If it if it's, uh, does not light up, uh, most likely, uh, it's it's fibrosis. If it lights up, it still could be fibrosis and inflammation. Uh, but at least you have a very high negative predictive value for for uh, PET scans in the post uh, chemo seminoma setting. Um, so so when can you withhold post chemo RPLND? It's, it's when the mass is uh, the residual mass is really less than one centimeters. We have uh, excellent data from three or four institutions that shows this is very safe with, with a 97, 98% cancer-specific survival. How about, I know you use the term desperation post-chemo <laughs> RPLND. Yeah, it's, it's a terrible term to be honest, but it's in all the books and chapters and we continue to use it. Uh, desperation uh, really, uh, post-chemo RPLND uh, refers to the situation where You've, you've essentially exhausted your, your use of chemotherapy regimens or systemic regimens, and you have rising tumor markers, but you still have a, 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 a resectable mass. Uh, those patients are candidates for resection because that can be curative in, in about 25%. Unfortunately, that's a bad situation, and most patients will succumb to their disease. But at least uh, if you do have a mass that's resectable, you can potentially save the patient. Uh, hence the term, uh, you know, desperation, because most of them will not respond any further to either chemotherapy, and there's a very high uh, uh, risk of relapse. What about if you have a situation where the tumor markers normalize, but there's residual and even growing uh, mass? 
Yeah, um, as, as we mentioned before, that the, the growing teratoma syndrome uh, is, is when you have a tumor marker response. However, the uh, tumor mass is growing uh, during or uh, following completion of chemotherapy. And it's often very confusing to the oncologist who thinks this that did not respond and needs additional chemotherapy. Those patients absolutely do not need further chemotherapy, need surgery, because almost 100% of the time they have pure teratoma that just happens to be growing, and the chemotherapy is is not cytotoxic for teratomas. So, uh, the, yeah, those patients just need surgery. What what happens if you don't treat that? Well, it, it continues to grow and, and will compromise the function of uh, surrounding organs, and, and we've actually seen cases where uh, the tumor has grown so much it actually can become unresectable as it begins to invade uh, surrounding structures. So even though they don't truly metastasize per se uh, from where they are, uh, they can grow into the bone, the spine, and eventually compromise organs uh, to the point of even uh, uh, succumbing, uh, the patient succumbing to the disease uh, for this. So there would never be a reason to watch or surveil a growing teratoma? Exactly. No, there, there, there's no role for that. If it's growing, it will continue to grow. And sometimes at fairly alarming rates, uh, it, it's variable how fast it grows. And we did publish a paper on the growth rate of these things. It's highly variable. It is a rare phenomenon. However, you need to recognize it because it's so important. Uh, but they do tend to grow uh, at, at least about a cubic centimeter a, a month. Any other adjuvant procedures that one could consider? Yeah, certainly if you have a very large mass uh, on the left side and, and, and the chemotherapy treats it and, and uh, uh, there's a lot of peri-aortic fibrosis, you do have to consider a left nephrectomy as, as the left gonadal vein drains into the left renal vein. It often tends to involve the left renal hilum. So even though the mass may be away from the renal vein and you think you might take it off, 15% um, of patients will end up with a nephrectomy which is the most common adjuvant procedure. Also, if you have masses that are circumferentially surrounding the vena cava, uh, typically, or aorta, even um, at times, it's extremely difficult to uh, completely resect the mass. And of course, we, we don't want to leave anything behind. So it's not uncommon for us to uh, resect uh, or remove the vena cava, uh, do a vena cavectomy, or even aortic resection with, uh, with a graft uh, from help with the vascular surgeons. Uh, but uh, vena cavectomies are very well tolerated. We don't graft uh, cavas uh, after resection because most of the time they have been already partially occluded uh, from the disease process. So the patient doesn't really, it doesn't affect the patient as much. Great. Well, Sia, I want to thank you very much for this really um, comprehensive overview uh, of medical and surgical treatment of advanced testis cancer. I want to thank uh, the audience for uh, your attention and for listening. And for those of you who are interested in uh, learning more on this, uh, certainly I would point you to the AUA update series lesson three uh, from uh, 2018, that's volume 37 uh, on this topic. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our first uh, featuring of an AUA update series article. And we uh, hope uh, to uh, bring more of these lessons to you uh, in the future. Uh, for those of you who uh, seek more information, I would uh, I would uh, encourage you to visit uh, our website at university.auanet.org. Um, thank you very much. Thank you.
this is uh, Pat Curley for everybody listening. I, I work at the Office of Education and uh, work in the background here of the podcast. We uh, wanted to talk maybe a little for a second about the new season coming up. It's uh, going to be our third year of podcasts, and I know that we've got uh, some recordings planned, so I thought I'd see if you have any thoughts about what we're going to be doing this year. The, the, the podcasts have been uh, really wildly successful, more uh, than, than I thought uh, that they would be. And it's, I think it's just because it delivers education in a way that um, – in a way that our membership really likes to have education delivered. It's simple, easy to the point, and uh, you can get that education on the go. So we want to continue to do this. Um, We want to continue to offer um, a variety of uh, topics uh, that cover all of urology. Uh, We're going to really try and and cover uh, the major areas of urologic oncology, of stone disease, of female pelvic medicine and functional urology, uh, of um, um, andrology and male sexual health, and even some general urology topics. And at times we'll have uh, a special feature uh, where we may uh, just have a podcast on something that's particularly relevant uh, that's going on at the time. It might be uh, an overview of an upcoming meeting or the annual meeting, or uh, as we did last year when we spoke about the video education committee and their uh, drive to obtain uh, videos for the core curriculum, and uh, and that was very successful. So we want to continue to keep uh, our topics varied uh, and timely, and of course uh, interesting to all our members. Great. Uh, you know, we've talked about it before, but this has been successful and, and we've been trying to keep up some rotation outside of our, our traditional interview podcast system. So uh, from our end, I think we're going to keep trying to give give our users some some of the plenary information from the annual meeting. Maybe they'll get some of the talks. We did courts in session this year. We did the take home messages, things like that. So. Uh, I think we're going to keep kind of producing that, and hopefully people will keep listening to it. Right. One other thing that we uh, that we have planned uh, is going to be a podcast, sort of a roundtable podcast, and uh, that's going to be uh, on uh, advanced practice providers and how advanced practice providers can be uh, best utilized by uh, urologists integrated into practice and how um, we can make our practices more efficient uh, and in that situation, in that podcast, uh, we hope to have both urologists and advanced practice providers, uh, both uh, PAs and NPs, uh, in sort of a roundtable format. So it'll be uh, a little bit different than our traditional yeah. podcast, but yet uh, still delivering uh, good, uh, solid uh, information in a concise way that's easy to listen to. Well, well, that's that's great. I think uh, I think our users will love it, and let's let them get on listening. 